we're going to consider together the letter that Paul writes to Timothy. It's called 1 Timothy because, of course, there is a 2 Timothy as well. This letter is written at the end of Paul's life. He is full of wisdom, but he's also uh, not only full of wisdom, but I think the idea is that he's seen a thing or two. He is not naive in what he believes the church to be, and that's going to be important for us as we consider the fourth chapter where it begins, especially compared to where the third chapter ends off. So what we've been doing as we've been considering this letter is we're looking at Paul's advice, his encouragement, his strengthening of Timothy in pastoring his church in Ephesus. And last week, I believe that Paul gives a, as we looked at it, at the end of chapter 3, there's a passionate appeal for the value of a local church, the value of what it means to be together, the, the task the church has to be a family, a household, to be one who guards and protects and holds up the truth of the gospel to the world, and we ended or thought about that particular section of Scripture, and you may think to yourself, well, that sounds all well and good. It's maybe a little bit too optimistic, a little bit too cheery, a little bit too big and visionary for the the beauty of the church. And then we turn now to chapter 4, and what we're going to see is that Paul in no way is misguided or somehow believing only cloudy kind of candy cane lane thoughts about the church. There are real dangers. There are real dangers that despite the church having the role as a guardian of the truth, that some will abandon the faith. And so the beginning of chapter 4, as we look into how the church should be ordered, the beginning of chapter 4 is about apostasy. So, the task this morning is for us to engage and to think with a seriousness of mind, a sober-mindedness of nature about the reality that there are many numbered among us in the visible church, I don't know if it means us in this room, but numbered among us, I'll say that, who in some years' time will no longer be numbered among us. This is a sobering reality. This is a dangerous thing to talk about and to consider. But Paul, because he's seen a thing or two, he wants to prepare Timothy to say, listen, the church is a marvelous place, a wonderful place. God has a plan for it. These are the things that it's doing. This is how the family is supposed to feel. These are the ways you can put things in order. But let's not be unaware. And let's actually talk about the things that are real sometimes people fall away. So I'm going to read the first five verses of 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to consider these together. Fourth chapter, 1 Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to, to, to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's bow for a moment and and pray as we've read this. God, thank you for this day, for the hours, the minutes, these moments that you have set in motion. We thank you for giving us 
life and breath and the opportunity to be together and to consider these things. I pray that we would take a full stock of the situation that we're in, to not have a skewed perspective, to not think too highly of ourselves or not to take for granted, but to rest and to rejoice and then to receive from you with gratitude these, these moments. God, would you help us? I know that our hearts are wearied. We have spirits that are willing but weak. We come with hurts and we hurt others. God, I ask your blessing on us. We're your church. We're your household. And I ask that you would be kind to us again this morning and send your spirit to bring comfort, to encourage us, to make us more awake, more alive than we were when we came in. God, I ask that you would give us eyes to see the reality of our souls and our minds, help us to think and to pray and to devote ourselves to the, to the proper things, to your teaching, so that we could be corrected, chastened, moved in the right direction. God, we offer ourselves to you, and we ask that you would please move in our midst. You are here. You're living. This is the church of the living God. So, living God, please have your, your way and give us life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Apostasy. This is one definition. One definition of apostasy is a public denial of a previously held religious belief and a distancing from the community that holds to it. So a public de denial of a previously held belief and a distancing from the community that holds to it. And it goes on to say that the term is almost always applied pejoratively, carrying connotations of rebellion, betrayal, treachery, or faithlessness. That is how people describe apostasy. It is a dangerous topic to consider. It means that at some level we must all face the reality that we are not in our own power or in our own abilities as secure as we think we are, that our minds and our hearts, especially our hearts, are to be guarded with all vigilance because something like apostasy has been taking place in communities of faith since the beginning. That's what Paul tells Timothy. And so in the face of great danger, when there is the reality, and that's not a small thing, to depart from the faith, to reject and to move beyond the hope that is in Jesus, is to give up the only hope that we have for life the only hope that we have for forgiveness, this is, according to Scripture, a perilous thing to consider and to talk about. I think most of us, as we think through this, can probably imagine, or maybe there's a face in your minds, or there's a name in your mind, of people who are numbered in our midst, sometimes moving, working, thinking, believing powerfully, who have since publicly denied the things that they held previously, 
and for sure distanced themselves from the community that they were in. These are painful realities. And so what I think Paul wants to do is he wants to give Timothy a little bit of a game plan. He's preparing him. He's telling him this is a danger. This is a very real danger. Here's how you're going to lay out some steps, some things to think about, some things to watch for. I don't know if you know this, but yesterday was exactly 10 years since members of elite United States military units carried out a raid to find and to eliminate Osama bin Laden. 10 years yesterday. I read a fascinating and unbelievably detailed listing of the preparation, the years that went into that particular moment, the months ahead of time of identifying the compound and the people who were involved, the secrecy around it. And what was perhaps most amazing to me as I read through this recounting of this entire operation was how, it honestly, I think I could use this word, how loving everyone was that was involved. And I know that sounds insane. These are hardened military veterans who are carrying out search and destroy kind of missions. But here's what I meant, here's what I mean. They felt the weight and the reality of the potential for danger and for loss. And the number of recounted conversations over months, hours long debates back and forth about the toll, the impact of something like this. What if we're wrong? What happens then? What if there are more people there than we thought? What if the Pakistani government believes that we're there for the wrong reasons? What if there were an endless list of preparations because the danger was so high. In response to the reality of something that is dangerous and perilous, we ought to, as best we possibly can, try to prepare ourselves. And when difficulty came, it was much warmer the day of the raid than they had prepared for, which seems like a funny thing to, to say. It's a desert place, but it was much warmer. And for that reason, the helicopter that was supposed to drop in couldn't get lift the way that it was supposed to. And rather than hovering above and dropping people down from ropes, the helicopter more or less crash-landed halfway into the wall of the compound, rendering it completely unusable. This is a perilous, a dangerous situation. But all that happened in the midst of the the rooms of people watching and trying to make this thing go down is they simply talked about plan B. They said, oh, well, we talked about this. Here's what we do now. Here's how this goes from here. This is how we protect and save. This is how we snatch people out of difficult spots. Now, that is, of course, a different kind of peril. But I don't think it's altogether unrealistic, that Paul would have felt something that deep, that he would have been thinking with Timothy, Timothy, listen to me. I want you to hear this plan. I want you to hear these thoughts. I want you to be aware so that you can prepare your people, and I want you to be prepared because there is danger, and spiritual death is not a small thing. I heard it said one time that a pastor's job, maybe one of the only jobs, is to prepare people well to die. 
just to keep you okay so that you're ready to die. And I think to myself how interesting that is. How one of my jobs is to prepare you for the most difficult moments of life. And one of the reasons we have Scripture is so that we have something to say to one another when the lift isn't there for the helicopter and we crash land the back end of the wall of the compound and you think to yourself, wait, this wasn't according to plan. You see, I thought I was going to go from VBS to summer camps to deaconing to never doubting to dabbing my face at my children's baptisms. But here I am, embroiled in a sin that I can't let go of. Here I am, hurt and suffering and bitter like I never thought I'd be. And here I am, reading these science books and wondering if the Bible has anything worthwhile to say about this. And here I am, much more apathetic than I ever thought that I would be. What do I do now? And that sounds sobering. It's why I'm grateful that Paul is not unwilling, that's a double negative, he is willing to talk about difficult things. He's willing to dive in with Timothy and say, hey, I mean, he just got done. You could end the book at the end of chapter 3. In fact, a lot of sermons I've heard, once you get to the hymn, you just quote the hymn at the end, you pray, and everybody goes on to lunch. It's a much more pleasant thing. Paul could have totally just left it there. I'm so grateful that he's willing to prepare Timothy for things that would be difficult. So he turns, and we have a fourth chapter. And the chapter headings are all made up. I mean, those weren't there in the original. This is all one thought. It's all one argument. Saying, yeah, the church is supposed to uphold the truth because Jesus is magnificent and he's wonderful. Now, remember, the Spirit tells you that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Wow. And so I want to follow in Paul's footsteps. And I want to say, okay, well, this is clearly something that we ought to be prepared for. And so what I want to do is I want to set a little bit of a plan, some thoughts in your, in your mind. What do we do when or how do we consider and think about the idea that some will depart from the faith? So maybe we could say ways to avoid departing. Ways to not have to go. And there's a couple of things I think that he describes. The first I would just say to be aware. We need to be sober-minded about the reality of spiritual warfare and faith. So be aware is going to be one big category. Second big category that we're going to put into place, and I think that Paul mentions to Timothy, is he's going to warn people about performance, performance, and faith. So first is just simply to be aware, to be sober-minded. Second, to watch for the tendency to perform. Watch for performance in religiosity. And then finally, he's going to extol and say, you know, one of the best protections against something like this could be is to give thanks, to be grateful. Be aware, watch performance, and then finally, be grateful. These are going to be tools. These are plans. These are things that insulate us against the sad reality that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching and teachings of demons. 
So let's walk through each of these. The first one is just to be aware. You should know that this kind of thing happens. I was shocked and probably unprepared as a father of young kids when I thought through the reality that much of my life, the way that I would love my children early on is to simply prepare them for things that they didn't know were coming. And sometimes that got absolutely ridiculous. Sometimes I would have to go on a scouting mission, full-on reconnaissance, not like the gorilla suit, but reconnaissance nonetheless, into public bathrooms to find out if they were automatic flush or not because my children were terrified. And when you kind of think about it, I mean, for a two-year-old who's on level with these machines, the first time that I walked in and my kids walked through a room and all of a sudden everything started going off and they were loud, like nearly a debilitating fear of using the bathroom. And for a parent of toddlers to put fear into using the bathroom is the worst thing that can happen in the history of the world. So one of my jobs as a dad was simply to tell the kids, now I want you to be aware, on the side in there, on the one side, there's one that goes off by itself. It's going to be fine. It sounds like this. It's going to be great. We're going to go to the left. Just going to prepare you. Here's how this works. Now that's a small thing, but then it goes on and on and on. Over the last couple of weeks, we visited Louisiana to be there for the funeral and burial of Sarah's grandfather. So my kids have a great, great grandfather, died on his 71st wedding anniversary. And as far as I know, it was one of the few times that they'd ever gone to a funeral home where there's a prayer service, there's a casket in the front, and one of the jobs is to go before, and I just want you to be aware. This is the kind of thing that is going to take place here. Let me talk to you about a casket and how this might go. So Paul is telling Timothy, hey, listen, I just want you to know, be aware, this is how this might go. People will devote themselves to the wrong things. There is a demonic activity, spiritual activity, warfare going on, and some will depart. Just be prepared. Just be aware. Now, this is not new. Paul had stated this previously. In fact, he told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, we read this a couple of weeks back at the beginning of chapter 3, he told them about the reality that from within their ranks, there would be those who would seek to lead astray the faithful. I'm going to read as well this same sentiment from Jesus himself. You see, we should be prepared for the reality of spiritual warfare in our midst because it was pretty much a mark of Jesus' ministry, and he endured betrayals of all kinds. He says in Mark 13, verse 22, Mark 13, 22, Jesus' ministry, he said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and they'll perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Jesus is warning his followers. Now, I just want you to know, there's going to be false teachers, false leaders, false Christs. They're even going to perform crazy acts And the goal here is activity to lead astray, to get people to denounce, to have them walk the other way. Now, the way that Paul expresses this here, he says it in in interesting ways, and I'm not sure exactly. I think I'd be lying if I said I totally know the connections between all of these. I'm not sure if he's talking about different types of spirits, different types of teachers, or if these are representative of every false teacher, deceitful, he says. 
They say things and they know better. Isn't that just about the worst kind? Everybody has a little bit of a grace store for ignorance. Well, that was really dumb and hurtful, but I just don't think they knew better. Until they do it again and again and again. And you can just kind of feel it bubbling up in you. And you're like, wait, you're hurting people on purpose? So deceitful spirits. The reality that something is being spoken and then something intentionally withheld. This is intentional. He goes on to say that these kind of activities come from spirits and demons. You know, the funny thing is that Satan has been the accuser from the beginning, and he's just never changed his playbook. He just runs the same play. It's like that dominant team in peewee football. They just got the one kid, and they just always run sweep right. And you're the dad who's getting, watching your children get run over. And you're just like, it's the same play. It's coming again. It's coming again. There it is again. It's 70 to zero. There it is again. So Satan, from the beginning, it's just all he can do is deceive and deceit and bring in lies and accuse to be insincere. So this list of things to watch for, it says that there will be some people motivated in the spiritual battle to be deceitful, intentionally withholding. Teaching of demons, in other words, I think accusations, they would turn small hurts into big ones. They would say, you know, that thing, it's, it's not just that, you know, maybe, it's not just that Christians uh, would say, well, we don't really know exactly what happens scientifically through plutonium and the decay of elements. You know, God just didn't tell us exactly how he's working that out or what he started with or how that goes. And that small little thing, the accusation then becomes, well, you know, Christians are completely and utterly and totally anti-science and they hate facts. And I hear these kinds of things and I see people so moved by the sway of these kind of arguments. And the first thing that I want to say to them is, well, that, you know, that's totally and completely insincere, Right? Like that, that's, a, that's a little deceitful. That's not actually what was said. So the question becomes, how many of us are carried along by the spirit or the characterization of what was said rather than by what was actually said? And what Paul wants to say to Timothy is, well, here's one of the hallmarks of false teaching. They'll take something, but they'll move it insincerely. They'll use it insincerely. The kind of lying that is all too common among us. Especially in our world nowadays, everything is hot take. Everything is paint in pictures and corners. Now, I love generalizations. Man, I was about to say stereotypes. <laughs> it's just like, let me tell you what I'm all for, stereotypes. I guess I kind of, I mean, here's the point. When we say the sky is blue, generalizations help us. And you can't be the kind of person who says, well, actually, there's a cloud and it's kind of white over there. I mean, we know there's nuance. But generalizations are useful because they help us describe the world. But in our day and age, and in theirs apparently, insincerity, a kind of lying, runs rampant. So I might say to Brian, Brian, hey, um, do you like basketball? Want to go to a basketball game? 
You might say, you know, I don't, I don't really watch basketball much. I mean, I, I might. Let me, let me check. I, I might go. I just don't watch much. And how often do I leave that meeting and somebody says, hey, weren't you going to go to the game with Brian? And I might say something like this. Oh, he hates basketball. He hates it. Said he'd never go. Now, am I lying? Yes, <laughs> I'm lying. There's an insincerity about it. And these are the kinds of things that happen so often through a desire of our hearts. We want to. This is one of the chief things that turns in someone who begins to walk away from faith. They want to doubt. They want to believe the insincerity. It helps them because a person who has to wrestle with real doubt, that's a foggy place to be. And in a moment, someone who can even insincerely bring clarity and lie about what was being said, that's a welcome thing. And Paul says to Timothy, don't allow this kind of thing to be unnoticed. Don't let insincerity and deceit, especially from those whose consciences are seared, move people. This will happen. Now, this consciences who seared thing is incredible and full, and we could take an entire week, I think, just on the idea of conscience. But the reality here is that all of us have been given an internal barometer, an internal sense of right, wrong, something stamped in us, especially those of us who are in Christ, and it is a very dangerous thing to ignore and to sear the conscience. And he says there are some people whose consciences are not just a little bit hurt or damaged, but they are seared. I hate when my taste buds get burned. You hate that? I mean, I don't know if you have to hate it, but nobody likes it. It would be pleasant. Actually, if you are here today and you love your taste buds being burned a little bit, you might need to leave. But the reality here, you know what this word is for seared? like branding of a cow or something. I mean, you really ought to fear the person who just can't taste any longer at all because of over and over again. You know what I just love to do? I'm just going to burn. I'm just going to burn my taste buds so I can't taste. That's the reality here. There is that kind of danger in the world. And I think sometimes, I, I don't know exactly when, I wish I had the perfect formula because sometimes Paul names people He's already done this in Timothy. Sometimes he says they will come in, there will be some people teaching this way, and then some other times he just names names. I don't know when or how to name names because sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he doesn't, but the reality is this happens. So what I would say to you this, maybe this isn't the most encouraging thing to hear in a morning like this. You need to be aware that there's a spiritual battle for your mind and your heart and your soul as it relates to your faith. Don't be so unprepared, shocked when doubt comes. The other reality is that doubt is going to be a normal part of your spiritual life. I think we especially need to prepare children, young people, young adults for this. So many times when I sit with very sincere, loving, and I want to pray for, you know, college sophomore who just took whatever class they were in. You know, I've been in philosophy and I just don't, and they want to sit down. I, I just want to have them drink coffee and just 
almost just like put my arm around this and be like, oh, you thought this was the first time anyone thought like this. Just so you know, this is normal. I want to tell them that doubts will come. I want to tell them there's a spiritual reality. I want to tell them that sometimes you'll want to believe the insincere thing. If we're not prepared for this, I believe that we increase the danger. Second, he goes on and he says, watch for performance. Now, this is intriguing. If you thought to yourself, okay, I get it, it's dangerous, people are going to be walking away, the question might be, well, how do we know who it is? And how do we know what they're going to do? Now, this is counterintuitive for many of us, but Paul says, you know what, sometimes the people who lead others astray, the people who teach in this particular way, the way that they pitch it is not through sensuality or some sort of crazy brazen rebellion, but rather the introduction of religious performance. That one of the things you need to watch in your own heart and mind is when you have stopped wrestling with the reality of God, when you have stopped submitting yourself in wisdom and humility to the Spirit of God, and you have simply created a checklist that you can now mindlessly follow to know that you're okay. And here's what he says happens oftentimes with false teachers. They take principles that God has put into the world, principles, and they have absolutized them into very particular practices. These practices then become the litmus test for belonging. He says here, here's what happens. These false teachers will forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. I don't think it's a small thing, maybe just as an example here, but he uses the most base level, basic desires, food and sex. Food or fulfillment, daily sustenance, and fulfillment romantically. And people will come in and they will say, here's what's going to be pressed, a kind of legalism, a kind of asceticism about the way that you live. And what happens with this is that if you could just punish yourself in particular ways or organize your life in a particular way, then you would give yourself confidence that I must be okay because look at how I'm performing. And this is a danger now, I want to say out loud right now, legalism is a terrible disease, but it needs to be properly diagnosed. It's not legalistic for you to have self-control over the things that you eat or drink. It's not legalism to say, you know what, I don't drink because I just don't trust the situations I'll put myself in. I don't believe I can moderate properly, therefore I'm just out. That is not legalism. It is not legalism for someone to say, you know what, I made a plan. Sometimes I don't know what to read, but I want to read my Bible, so I made a plan and I just stick to it. No one should throw the barbs of legalist. I can't believe it. You just read one chapter a day over and over and over again. Don't you believe in freedom and the Spirit of God? That is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. So legalism needs to be properly diagnosed. It's a dangerous, terrible thing, but we need to be careful that we don't throw around the term legalist as an excuse to cast off all restraint or self-control or mastery of spirit. Does this make sense? We, there's, a, there's a line in there somewhere. That being said, 
Legalism is a real thing. And especially those of us who have wanted to do things well. I remember when I'm 19 years old and I'm reading about the sin of pride in mere Christianity for the first time and I have a little journal next to me and I'm starting to write out and I basically have to, I'm breaking inside because I'm writing out the reality that says something like this. Lance, you have been so proud because you know how to play Christianity and you're really good at it. You're, you're just better. In fact, the way that you know you're in with God is that you've done more than and you're a little bit more zealous than the rest of the people around you who must be out with God. And this kind of litmus test that I created for myself was a trap, a terrible source of pride where I gave praise not to God for saving me, but praise to myself for being so impressive to him. This really happens. And we should be careful against the sin of performance. Now, you might say to yourself, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I know if I am just performing at this thing, or how do I know if I'm sincerely walking in the freedom that God has given me? I saw a helpful little rubric, and I think this could make sense. I thought this was helpful because a lot of us need to know the specifics. Well, what should I do? When does wisdom turn into a trap of performance? And I saw a little rubric, and I thought this was helpful. It's a series of questions. You ever seen one of those flow charts? They're usually done for funny reasons. Like, uh, at the bottom of it, it's just a huge starred, circled, underlined, bolded, eat the chocolate, you know, and then it's like all these questions, like, is it a, it's like my grandfather, eat the ice cream. He used to tell me all the time, I only eat ice cream when I'm alone or with somebody. And so his flow chart was pretty clear, right? Or he'd say to me, he'd only say to me, I only eat ice cream on days that end with why, Lancey. You, know, you, see, you see how his flow chart just always ended with that? That's how these usually are? Here's a flow chart for how do we know what Scripture tells us we ought to be doing, but not turn it into performance. First question, does the Bible allow it? Does it allow it? In other words, is it expressly prohibited or not? I believe that there is freedom. Where the Spirit of Christ is, there is freedom. So does the Bible allow some activity or said thing? Of course, if the answer is no. If the Bible flat out says, don't do this thing, well, that's easy. End of flowchart, don't. There's a circle, don't. Does the Bible allow it? If no, don't. If yes, then you move on to the next question. And this is why I believe that conscience comes into play and we shouldn't so easily cast the word legalist out. Here's the next question. Does the Bible allow it? If yes, does my conscience allow it? Do you know that Scripture says that there are certain things that unless done in faith are a sin? It means that it's not so easy. We can't just make a list for everyone. We're going to have to give grace to one another in the way that we do partake or don't partake in particular things. Does my conscience allow it? In other words, we ask this question because we don't want to end up as one whose conscience is seared. If you are at a place where from your gut and from your heart and from your mind, you believe that this may be something that is harming you or others, something that you feel for whatever reason that you cannot in full faith participate in, then the flowchart ends right there. Don't. Freedom often means the ability and 
the willingness to not do something as much as freedom can mean the willingness to do something. So the first question, does the Bible allow it? If no, don't. If yes, does my conscience allow it? If no, then oftentimes don't. Now, it might mean that you're going to be, need to pray about it, or you might need to talk to someone about it. There are, in fact, weaker and stronger brothers in Scripture. Sometimes it's called weaker and stronger. I guess that means that a weaker could become stronger. But in the moment, what we should be careful about oftentimes is our conscience. So, does the Bible allow it? If yes, does my conscience allow it? If yes, we're still not done. Here's some other concepts, the things that are, I think, helpful. How do I make sure that I'm not just a legalist? Or how do I make sure that my conscience is not seared? See, wouldn't those be terrible pendulums to swing back and forth between? Here's what happens with me. I'm either a complete and total legalist or I'm completely central with no rules altogether. All and I'm just... So three more questions. What effect might this have on other Christians? A little chart that I saw had a little footnote. So does the Bible allow it? If yes, does my conscience allow it? If yes, next question, what effect might this have on other Christians? A little footnote, because love is more important than knowledge. Another question that might come in handy, what effect might this have on non-Christians? Because many times the gospel is more important than my individual right. Maybe a third question, what effect would this have long-term on my spiritual life? So in other words, in this precise moment, yes, Scripture allows it, my conscience allows it, I'm fine, I don't think it's going to affect other Christians in any particular way or non-Christians in any particular way, but the question could be, what effect would this have long-term on my spiritual life? Because the principle here is that spiritual vibrancy is a freedom that's freer than freedom to do what I want. And it's these kind of questions, I believe, over the course of time, in community, with people who love you, that create a heart of wisdom as it relates to performance, rather than a litmus test for belonging. And I think that what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is, not only to be aware that these kind of things can happen, but watch how it will show up in your church. It might not be what you think. It might be what happens is, the people who are closest to departing, the people who are in the most danger are actually the ones who are the most consistently and passionately fighting about religious activity. Maybe the person closest to departing from the faith is the person who has absolutized a principle and put it into practice. They're the person who says, I insist, worship must look like this, this instrument, this song at this time. Maybe they're holding on to something about the way that they belong. We do this with all kinds of things. It doesn't have to just be religious things. Of course, it can be food, require abstinence for particular foods. I think the Greek actually there says whole 30 is what it says. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I had to step on toes a little bit, didn't I? Just for a minute, just for a, just a, little, just a little tap. Again, someone who does things for reasons that are beneficial to them. That's very different than absolutizing a principle into a practice and placing on other people for belonging. But we do this kind of thing for schooling. 
a general principle and a desire to say something like, I want my children to be educated and to know the ways of God. That is the command of Scripture. That is the way this ought to look. That then becomes an absolutized practice that says anyone and anywhere that a child exists, they must only and ever be schooled in this way. And we create performance metrics for how we belong. We choose particular projects, sometimes even of ministry. Well, sure, you're a Christian, but if you were a real Christian, you would be active in this ministry in this way that is clearly the only way to belong. We create metrics for political activism, even beyond party, perhaps a particular idea or concept. Well, sure, I... I, You know, Christians are fine, but what I really trust are constitutional Christians. I mean, I don't know if if that makes any sense, but I've interacted with these situations. Paul says, watch performance. Be aware that you can fall and then watch performance, which is an interesting, I believe, kind of counterintuitive way to watch for your soul. Usually what you'd think is, if you're going to be simple about it, Paul might say, watch for those who might depart, might depart from the faith. And then what you'd look around for is watch for all the ways that I'm wildly sinning in uncontrollable craziness. But he says, well, it's more complicated than that. And you see, our hearts are deceitful more than we know. And then finally, he says to give thanks. What a beautiful way to guard against departing from the faith, to give thanks. I just want to note that in Romans chapter 1, when Paul in his glorious letter describing the condition of all of mankind, when he describes what goes wrong fundamentally at the heart, he says this in verse 21. In Romans chapter 1, he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Thanksgiving, Paul tells Timothy, is one of the most fundamental and proper Christian postures. And in his perspective, it seems like the thing that he's noticed is he says this, you know what one of the first things to go is when someone's in a bad spot? Thankfulness. They're not receiving things well. They don't have truly grateful hearts. They seem a little demanding. They seem a little bit put out. Seem like they deserve a little bit better. Gratefulness, true thankfulness is such a gift in the world because it leads to true and proper humility, which is a fundamental, proper posture of Christianity. One commentator said that what happens is in thankfulness is that human beings become stronger. We grow to our proper stature as those who are poised between God and creation. And when you are properly thankful. You are keeping things in their right place. You are not becoming those who reject creation in the same way that you are not becoming those who idolize it. Thanksgiving couples God's word and his creation with an affirmation that it is good and with grateful receiving of the goodness of what God has made. Someone who can rightfully and properly enjoy the world. That's the place to be. I've noticed that in me, and maybe you've noticed it in you. You ever been around someone who's so spiritual they can't enjoy anything? Have you felt that in you? 
It's like the person has this little catch in them. They really start to enjoy something. Oh, I love this song. They're just like moving, and then they just stop, and something inside them says like, wait, you're not supposed to enjoy things. And Paul says, Timothy, watch this. There's going to be an instinct in people. They can't even enjoy stuff. The kind of person who's eating a wonderful steak that's cooked marvelously, beautifully with a wonderful view and all they're thinking about, they have to say it out loud. Well, you know, I just feel so bad for those people who don't have what we have right now. I would, you, know, you know what I mean? And I, I, of course, you should think about other people who don't have things. But I think you get the spirit here. That's not true gratitude. To actually believe that God is good and He made a good world and He wants to give you good things, that is a protective dance in the practice of your faith. G.K. Chesterton wrote a little poem. It's in one of his notebooks. He talked about gratitude. And he said this, written almost in song kind of form, not going to try, but it's like a poem kind of thing. He said this, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime and grace before I ever even open a book and grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing and walking and playing and dancing and grace before I even dip the pen in the ink. I think he was on to something that to live connected to God through the good gifts that He gives in creation is a protection against the dangers and the perils of falling away. So this list, to be aware, this kind of thing happens, to watch the performance theater in your life, and then finally to actually be grateful. Here's a good question, at least for me. This is something I check in, in me. When I've engaged in something, is my first instinct, the first thing that I say to someone, is it sarcasm? Is the first instinct that I say to someone to point out the things that were wrong and could have been improved? Or do I have a genuine reflex of gratitude in what I've just engaged in? This is a mark for me. I could go to a concert from a band that I love and I would walk out and one of the first things that I might want to say is, did you notice how in the third minute of the fourth song that they missed that drum solo? I can't believe they did that. And it's right then that I believe spiritual me, like godly me, ought to punch ungrateful me straight in the mouth repeatedly. Can you believe that ungrateful Lance just engaged in some wonder of the world and was there with friends and family and the overwhelming grace that is music and he really enjoyed it and then he couldn't even enjoy it because he had to nitpick something? Can you believe that? See, I, I check these things. I want to check these things in my soul. I think about it with other people. I want to be properly grateful for you. I heard a pastor say one time that one of the most difficult things in a church is that those who you are called to shepherd, it's so easy to see their, their faults because you're having to engage when you're trying to shepherd them. And I think it was Spurgeon that once said, dear pastor, you've not been called to complain about your people. And I think to myself sometimes, why am I so complainy? What am I missing here? It's 
why I want to tell our staff, I want to say, like, what a wonder. I can't believe you showed up today. I mean, that's a good baseline. Are you a human being that loves Jesus Christ and we get to be together and sing songs? Wow, what a grateful thing. Think about the way that we engage our friends or our family or our parents, how critical we can be of moms or dads who just don't get it, friends who aren't there for us exactly the way that we wanted them to be there for us, children who aren't as perfect as we thought that they would be, and the question all along becomes, where has gratitude gone? So Paul tells Timothy, be grateful. I don't want to leave you with the idea that somehow, and we'll, we'll get there, that somehow Scripture is, is negative on you or believes that everyone's just going to eventually depart. That is not the case. In fact, Hebrews, which is a book largely about the dangers of falling away, comes to a conclusion and says this, that I have confidence, I believe better things for you. And I think that's what I want to say to you. That though these are real, and though I believe we all deal with performance, and I believe that all of us could probably be more grateful, I have confidence, I believe better things for you. I want to read Jude, verse 20, down through the end of the book. turns out that Jude is a book that deals with the same themes. Before I read this, I might just say this. Maybe it's harder to hang on than all of us thought. The New Testament brings this up a lot. This is what Jude says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would sober us We don't want to be naive to the reality of the the spiritual battle that rages around us and in us. This morning, we are not a gathering of perfect faith. And I pray, I pray here this morning, Spirit of God, would you give assurance? Would you supernaturally strengthen the grip that where we have trembling arms and shaky fingers holding on, keeping ourselves in the love of God, Spirit of God, would you move supernaturally in us to give assurance and power? We pray, God, that our confidence would not be in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, who is able to keep us blameless. We thank you for these promises and help us to walk in them now in Jesus' name. Amen.